Toscano, Segoani, Bojo, Quay, Tansy, and good morning and welcome to Moan of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And of course, you can also listen anywhere across the country by downloading the Radio Player Canada app and uh, just typing in 95.7 ELMNT, and that will uh, get you uh, the uh, Ottawa station. You can also uh, type in 106.5 ELMNT, and that will get you the Toronto station. We're happy to have you join us today for the show. We have a couple of uh, very interesting guests that are phoning in today. Our first guest is Jocelyn Jo Streck, and she's calling in from Whitehorse. We're very pleased that she's able to call us and, and join us on the air Jocelyn is a uh, a member of the Wolf Clan and the Ash Ashishik, I believe, First Nation. Did I say that correctly? Champagne and Ajak. Ajak. Oh, it's a, a very interesting spelling. On thank you for clearing that up. Um, Jocelyn is also an Indigenous scientist, a philosopher, an entrepreneur. She strives to evoke tomorrow's policies of blending yesterday's ancestral lessons with today's systematic knowledge. She uses her experience as a trained microbiologist and hydrologist uh, and policy analysis, along with her cultural foundations, to explore resilient approaches to challenges such as climate change, societal well-being, and prosperity. That's a very interesting um, mouthful of information and and things that you've taken on there, uh, Jocelyn. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Now, I understand you just came back from a, a European tour. I did. We were over over abroad for four weeks, pretty much for the month of February. Now, when you say we, who are you referring to? I went with my husband and my two young children. I have a, a baby who's going to be a year next week and a three-year-old. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> No, um, yes, I'm happy to share. It actually went pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> so was it a holiday or was it a trip or was it actually a sort of somewhat work-related? It was work-related. So okay. I was invited by the embassies of Canada um, to come share the Indigenous perspective of uh, climate change uh, by the countries of Spain, Sweden, Germany and France. Now, I'm not surprised to hear that, but at the same time, um, you know, I, I think that Indigenous knowledge on this matter of climate change should be in the forefront of, of approaching this and probably should have been quite some time ago because of Indigenous uh, uh, living in green for millennia, you know. So um, when you approach people and talk about this in, in terms of uh, Europe, um, what what are you saying to them that might be different or might be uh, something that they're not hearing or they haven't heard before? When they invited me, I think they were expecting me to come with a kind of woe is us tale of mm. climate change in the Arctic, which is the common narrative, right? Mm. And um, But that was not what I came with at all. I, I spoke much about the Yukon's journey, the Yukon First Nations journey, towards self-determination, towards our negotiations of our agreements, our self-government agreements and our umbrella final agreement that has given us a high degree of determination. And in the end, for us, after overcoming our, our hardship and trauma that we all know so well, what matters is our our culture and our wellness and our journey to reclaim that and reclaim our our degree of self-reliance and the ability to take care of ourselves in our own way. And inherently what that entails is regaining our role as inherent stewards of the, our land, the land. And that is the approach that I've shared to, for climate change. No, um, when, and it's, yeah, oh, sorry. sorry, go ahead. <laughs> it, I just think that it's, it's lessons that are applicable for all people, not just First Nations people. And I think that was the new things that the European sort of people uh, got to hear from me. And overall, I felt that they received it quite well. Were they surprised to hear you you say these things in terms of being stewards of the land and, and how this it goes beyond just Indigenous people, that it's it, it should be something that we all uh, strive for? I think they were. And I think one of the sort of novel things that I brought was a bit of emotion in a presentation. 
I felt that they were very used to hearing, um, you know, technical, uh, political type presentations that sort of removes humans and humanity from the discussion. And whereas I came with a very deep understanding of what it is to be a person, especially one rooted to the environment, and just brought a bit of a message of like the peace and presence that the environment brings and the fact that it's essential for the human experience. Now that's, you know, that is a little surprising to me in some ways. When when you say that, when you talk about uh, this this topic to people and you say it's emotional and you're, you're bringing a, a connection to the, the subject that they're used to hearing more technical, you know, I mean, we are all human beings. We are all affected by this. So mm-hmm. I'm really surprised that that there is this disconnect still in terms of understanding that if we don't uh, approach this and have, if we don't all get this connection, that we are all going to suffer regardless. Mm-hmm. Like one example I can share is while I was over there, I got the pleasure of uh, sharing an hour and a half with grade 11 students while in Berlin. Mm. And uh, it was one of the best sessions that I had. And what I did was I had them... I spoke to them for 20 minutes about where I was from, and then I gave them the remaining hour to make a small felt bag for someone that they love Mm. and as a approach to climate change. Mm. And so, you know, their teachers at first were like, it's not arts and crafts hour, but (laughs) as it came along, they started to recognize that what I was giving them was an hour to sort of a big life lesson Mm. that... Anything that they create has far more value than anything they could buy. And by sharing and giving something to somebody that they love, they have a moment of presence and that bit of themselves lives on in that piece of material. And so it just was intended to teach them a lesson about their own capacity and ability, give them a moment of fulfillment and give them a moment of like love with the people around them. And for them, for the grade 11 students, they completely understood the purpose of, mm. of the activity that we were doing. It was it was an incredible moment for me. And um, as we gave like the open mic to them while they were working away sewing, which is a common thing for my community, mm. but many of them had never even picked up a needle and thread, but they all did it, mm. all 80, 16-year-old <laughs> kids, boys wow. included their bag and they um, recognized that you know this was a moment where I realized that it was an entire one of them said this is an entirely new perspective of climate change for me (laughs) I was only told that combat climate change I needed to become a scientist or a politician and this helped me realize that there's things that I can do myself that allow me to feel good and also contribute to climate change. Wow. And then another one reflected, you know, it was great to spend an hour with my friends without our cell phones, but still busy and not just listening to something, but, you know, interacting. Yeah. It it was pretty incredible and not something that they had ever been exposed to before. Well, congratulations. It sounds like that was a minor success, and uh, I'm glad that, that they were able to. I was, just, I was going to ask you, did they get it? So the fact that you said they, mm-hmm. they, they, came, out, 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 they came away from that with those, uh, that experience, and, and, and what you just shared with us is, is wonderful to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, what about the NBCs themselves? Uh, you know, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, questions they had, or or uh, their their openness to to understand uh, the the bigger picture? Um, I had wonderful hosts at each embassy, mm-hmm. and they were quite open to supporting whatever message it was that I I wished to bring to share. And um, I felt that it was a bit of a, it was an exchange, definitely, Mm. um, in terms of working at the more political level. So I heard a lot about the IPCC and um, approaches that the EU is taking to climate change. And much of it is focused on emissions reductions and things that have come out of 
the Paris Agreement mm. um, that are all very positive, but, you know, very democratic and political. I was much more focused on people. Mm. Um, and uh, I think it was a useful uh, sort of dialogue for them to share with the general public. Because, again, much of the climate change discussion is so focused on what the governments can do and how we can legislate climate change. Whereas I think the First Nations approach is much more about like the community approach to climate change that's focused on people and their wellness in their connection to land and their ability to do and create and be. So did you get... Sorry, go ahead. No, go for it. Um, Did you get a sense then uh, from that experience that that Europe uh, is is more being driven this through policy uh, that it's it's heavily being you know driven by the policies that are being written. I think when folks have an understanding of climate change, there's a degree of well uncertainty and and well I don't want to say helplessness, but uncertainty in how an individual can can do better by climate change, especially. Through my tour, I visited the great cities, and so I went to Madrid, to Berlin, to Stockholm, and to Paris. Mm. And one of my greatest takeaways was these folks in the big, busy city don't have have many moments of like peace and mm. slowness. Um, <laughs> their, their life is ever on the go, 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 and I'm sure that's a common um, thread too in in Great Toronto. And what I gave them was a bit, I just got a moment to share a bit of my calmness and peace that I kind of live more regularly than than folks in the city. And the most common question that I got, especially when I shared with university students, was, you know, how can I live a bit calm and have a bit of this mo- these moments in the big city? Mm. <laughs> and unfortunately, I didn't have a lot to um, give back on that because my understanding is so rooted in the forest uh, that while me and my little family were in these big cities, we actively sought like the parks mm. and the trees and and nature. We we felt a little bit out of our elements, mm-hmm. and so rather than going to the shopping malls, you know, we were more common like by the by the fountains and the boulevards and the big parks. Sure. So for people, it was you know being in the city, it made me really reflect on how much more important nature is Mm. um, when it comes to understanding climate change, because if you're so removed from the environment, from nature, from peace and calmness and slow, how can you understand what it is that we're trying to save? And, um, you know, so I think people that I spoke with at the embassies and through my events, they really... I hope that I just brought them a bit of my understanding and most came away with a bit of emotion and I got tears sometimes and, um, you know, hugs. (laughs) (laughs) I think I created, I hope, I would like to believe that I created a bit of a safe space where people could understand a bit of what nature offers in terms of just being wellness. Well, our planet, uh, you know, I, I mean, do do they get a sense? Do you think they understand that that this planet we live on, Mother Earth, and and here on Turtle Island, that 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 it's a living being? Do you think they get a sense of that, or do they think it's a it's a you know a place uh, from some perspectives, it's just a place to use up, you know? Mm-hmm. I heard a lot of a desire to understand. Mm. And to reconnect, mm. but uncertainty of how. Right. And so in Europe, they felt that they had been separated for generations. Right. And, um, you know, even the air is is affected mm-hmm. that they breathe. And, um, and so, and I, and I suppose they have, and it, it made me ponder, you know, so how do folks in the big city regain this connection and um, in the concrete jungle and recognizing that earth is not to serve, but to, to flow and it's for us to live with right. and uh, in harmony. 
and even one of my statements actually is about the fact that we've created this civilization founded on literally cement that mm-hmm. is static on an and we expect earth ever dynamic breathing living earth to not move <laughs> and now we're all accosted because mm-hmm. it's sort of like lashing back at us yeah um you know mm. And so, now, yeah, in the concrete jungle. Were you able to, now I know, I'm just trying to think of, of indigenous Europeans. Um, I know like for in um, some parts of, of Northern Europe, the Sami are, are the indigenous people. Uh, mm-hmm. Were you able to meet any other indigenous people from, are there other indigenous people in other parts of Europe? I'm, I'm not sure if I know that or not. Yeah, I, I did have the the joy of um, presenting, co-presenting with a, a wonderful man named Nila. Um, and he works with uh, a Sami organization out mm. of Sweden. Mm. And uh, it was really wonderful to present with him because I felt that our perspectives were so similar. Mm. But one of the challenges was he was, the Sami are still in a position of fighting. Um, what, which do you mean, many, what do you mean by that, fighting? having to fight for the rights. Mm. Um, and many nations in Canada are still there too. But sure. in the Yukon, with our agreements, we we really have a high degree of self-determination where we are in a position where we expect to be heard. We expect partnership and we expect any development or land or partnership or community development to occur with our input and perspective, mm. um, or even beyond input. We're, we're at partnership here, mm. and it really made me recognize, you know, our our fighters, are. I think of them as like the generation before us, and my dad's generation had to fight right. for our agreements, and, mm. um, and they achieved them. And so now, my generation, we call ourselves the children of tomorrow, because mm. they've they fought under the mantra of together today for our children tomorrow. And mm. now we're in this position where we're able to to dream and to ha- we have the luxury of, of truly implementing and being able to articulate what our way is and what the future could be. We're not having to put all of our efforts into fighting. Right. And so the Sami, they still must fight for their rights. And mm. so they he spoke about having to herd his caribou within within predefined borders and the climate is changing, the environment is shifting, but their borders are still. And so they're not able to move the caribou as they once, or the, sorry, the reindeer as they once were. Yes. And they're suffering. The right. people and the reindeer are suffering because right. of these theoretical borders. Yeah. And uh, so all of their energy, instead of trying, being able to articulate and understand the strength of their culture, they're just having to fight for every scrap of land and for the livelihoods of their their culture and their reindeer. They're, you know, mm. um, they're having to supplement their reindeer with, with hay because they're not able to get to the wintry feed, the lichen, because it's frozen under ice. Yeah, I remember they hearing... They were able to move, yeah. I remember hearing They were some able that, to move right. further south, they could. Right. So. Yeah, I remember hearing some of that. I want to go back to uh, to your time in in Germany, uh, and you and you mentioned Berlin, because I believe Germany has uh, a, a a very huge interest in the indigenous culture. Did you find that when you were there? I did the romanticized interest. I had to explain a couple times actually that we are fully modern people. <laughs> <laughs> you know we. We have car. I have a big truck and <laughs> and an RV, but I also have you know cabins, and I also still live like out in the land for t- certain parts of the year. But yes, there was an an understanding that uh, by some a, a hope, even I think that we still lived uh, our nomadic ways. It's um, a, because I've heard different things from people, and I've heard that that they they have villages set up, and and people dress in traditional uh, uh, mm-hmm. outfits and things, and uh, and and languages. I understand there's number of places where they <laughs> teach the language, um, or, yeah. or trying to learn the language. It's uh, quite something. Yeah, they. Um, I think it's modeled 
they have a childhood story. Mm. I can't remember exactly who it's after, but I think that sort of instills the original romanticism mm-hmm. from, from childhood right. um, about a, a a little Indian boy. <laughs> um, yeah, it reminds me of, it just made me think of Trekkies. All right. <laughs> you know, learning Klingon. But um, it's because it's so separated, right? That's yeah. the degree of separation. But um, actually in the Yukon, we have a lot of German people come here. Mm. Um, for nature. Mm. They're really interested in in what it is to connect. And one thing that surprised me about Germany, actually, is, is we went to Stuttgart, which is a, on the oh, opposite yeah. corner of the country from Berlin, and we took the train back. And um, it was a six and a half hour train ride, and it went through a, a lot of forest, mm. which surprised me. Sure. There, there's actually a lot of forest remaining in, in Germany. And so they do still get the opportunity to to be out there if they wish mm-hmm. and to find solitude. While we were in Stuttgart, we took a 40-hour train ride and we found solitude in the forest. We mm-hmm. like actively were like, we need the forest. My little girl was playing with sticks. <laughs> I was like, wow, I think she needed it more than we did. Right. <laughs> but uh, um, it's different from Paris or from France or from Spain where it's just all agriculture. Right. They don't have the trees in the same way. Right. Uh, listen, we have to take a short pause, but we uh, sure. don't go away because we want to come back and talk more. So we're going to take a <laughs> pause here for uh, uh, a moment, and we will be right back on Moment of Truth after this. We're back on Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and you are listening uh, to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. In Ottawa at 95.7 FM and in Toronto at 106.5. You can also listen anywhere across Canada by downloading the Radio Canada app and uh, just typing in 95.7 ELMNT. FM or 106.5 ELMNTFM, and you can listen to either station anywhere you like, right across Canada. Our guest today on the show is Jocelyn Jo Strack, and she is an Indigenous scientist, philosopher, and entrepreneur. She strives to evolve tomorrow's policies by blending yesterday's ancestral lessons with today's systematic knowledge. And having said that, uh, Jocelyn, I'd like you, you're calling from Whitehorse in the Yukon this morning. Mm-hmm. How's the weather up there, by the way? Very, very warm. <laughs> Is it? What, 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 yes. what do you mean by very warm? <laughs> well, normally when we think of March, we think of lots of light and sunshine, but still lots of snow. And it's supposed to be a glorious time of year where you're out like skiing and um, just getting to enjoy uh, all of the sun and warmth. Mm. But right now it's uh, pretty much all gone and mm. um, lots of mud. So I kind uh, of think of this as like April weather. But yeah. That is the change. Um, is. So it's yeah. So we're my girls are in uh, rain boots. <laughs> oh yes, mudding around these days. Yeah. So listen, you you mentioned how things are different up in in the Yukon in terms of land claims and self government and those kind of things. And you, you, you guys have been out of the Indian Act since 1993, and you mm-hmm. mentioned how you guys are working on partnerships now uh, when you look towards uh, doing things. Uh, can you can you elaborate a little more on that, and how does that give you more uh, more room uh, and and more determination in terms of working out partnerships that include, say, more more uh, element of of including environmental uh, protection? Mm-hmm. So our umbrella final agreement set out the legislative um, framework for the Yukon. And so that includes things like our environmental assessment, um, our uh, like land planning process here in the territory is all guided underneath our final agreement. Mm. And what the final agreement does is it outlines, um, well, a lot of boards. <laughs> so there's, you know, uh, a heritage board, a development board, a, um, renewable Resources Board, um, and on these boards, there's equal representation from the ter- from the Yukon government, the government of Canada, and then the First Nations governments. Mm. The whole, they call it the spirit and intent of the Umbrella Final Agreement, is one of collaboration mm. and partnership. So we signed these agreements and. Um, Within our traditional territories, we have sort of two two types of land. We have settlement land and then crown land. And the settlement land is 
owned by the First Nations and under the authority um, of the First Nations government to manage fully. Um, but it's a very small percentage of our traditional territory as a whole. The majority is crown land. And the intent is that we collaboratively manage the crown land with the Yukon government. So the idea is that we never signed away all of our rights to all of our land. We signed a partnership agreement. Mm. And um, so in moving forward, how that has worked, it's been interesting. We've been implementing our agreements for 20 years now. And uh, depending on the government of day, of the day, it's either been one a government interested in partnership or a government interested in defining our. <laughs> so we're fortunate right, right now to be with a government who's interested in partnership, and uh, it's I believe created great progress for Yukon First Nations and Yukoners and Canadians as a whole. Um, we are not a people who have tried to say this is ours. We've always recognized that the land is for all, and we don't even have the notion of ownership within our culture anyway. Mm. We we have the notion of stewardship and caretaking. And so um, when we talk about so what that's done now is it's created this sort of bureaucratic culture where working with the First Nations is a norm. Um, it's not a, a side note or a box to tick. Mm. It's how business is done. Mm. And um, it's it's really become very refreshing. And so it's created a lot of room for innovation when it comes to how we manage and how we do or how new developments are proposed even. Um, so for large scale mines, there's great negotiation and partnership that goes into working with the First Nations um, prior to, you know, anything being, any shovel being laid. Um, so even before uh, like uh, proposals are submitted to the development uh, assessment process, you know, a, a strong partnership and relationship with the First Nations should already have been established. Um, and so, and I, and I believe that is because of the agreements and because of the leadership and determination of, of the First Nations people. And so, yeah, we're in this really great place right now. It's all very experimental. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's a lot of trial and error and some things have worked, some things haven't. <laughs> mm. But, uh, you know, it's it's a real... I think we're just really able to innovate. So something that I'm doing um, as a part of that innovation actually is I'm assisting my First Nation to develop a land plan for our traditional territory that we are doing solely. So it's kind of without the noise of the other stakeholders and interests, we're able to kind of put our heads down and create a vision. And it's a 200-year vision and my people, they're like, why even 200 years? It's just like where we're heading towards for the generations to come. Mm. And um, it's intended to really set this out a place of a thing, something to work towards. And when it comes to and overcoming some of the challenges that our adoption of modern society has per, has given. So it's about the rebalance towards Dunke, we call it. Dun is people, K mm. is trail so the our people's way mm. um and i'm using that experience actually to do a phd with the university of saskatchewan and working on the plan is is how i pretty much came up with all of the understanding that allowed me to go to europe and and talk to people so tell me about that when you're working on this plan a 200 year plan uh, you know, when when you sit here, you try to look two hundred years into the future. Um, what are you taking into consideration? What are you looking at? What are you? What are you? Where do you want to end up at that time? How do you plan for that? Much of it is about a shift in society's values, mm. um, and so when you're talking two hundred years, it takes generations, I think, to really change mm. um, cultural norms. And uh, not even just, you know, First Nations cultures, but like Canadian culture. And um, so it's trying to sort of redirect what is prosperity. Right Mm. now, prosperity is very much underlined in economic values. But I, in my talks while I was in Europe and in my musings as an academic, 
And then as a consultant thinking about, um, you know, how do I best serve my government, which is an economically driven government now. Um, and then how do I put this all into words, into a land plan? I think a lot about actually numbers. And um, as a scientist too, I, I you know, I have a academic technical understanding of numbers, but I also, as a philosopher, recognize how numbers are not serving people. And in our culture, we only counted to 10. We had numbers to 10. Mm -hmm. And then there was lots or many. We could never have assumed to have that, or we could never be so arrogant to assume that we could understand great earth (laughs) and that definite value because you would never, there's, or we could, we understood that there was so much more value to earth than Mm. just a numerical understanding. Mm. You know, it would have been disrespectful. Right. And so, but that's how numbers form the underpinning of our entire society now. And go go ahead. Go ahead. I just believe that it's one of the reasons why we're kind of caught up in the conundrum that we are in now. Numbers, don't reflect people. Neither do um, literal. Neither does literal policy. Mm. So how do we put emotion and integrity back into our management and our governance? That's much of what the land plan looks at. Interesting. Now, when you when you approach uh, um, your your counterparts, the non-indigenous counterparts, with with the idea of this numbers thing that you're talking about, and that we can't just look at the numbers that. This earth is not just numbers. Uh, do they do they get that? Do they understand where that's coming from? Is that a is is it is it um, is it something they they can get their head around? I think there's a lot of interest, and um, uh, you know, if, sometimes if I frame it as like this is a part of how you understand traditional knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's what they're sometimes interested in is, you know, how do, how do we meld the knowledges? Yep. And very quickly, it's, you know, our knowledge is not about quantification. It's about a way to live and mm-hmm. a way to understand what is life. Like, I, I like the concept of, um, you know, bad, oh, you know, bad in <laughs> the Ojibwe, good life. Um, <laughs> I'm pronouncing it very wrong. Um, you know, and, and we don't have a direct term for it here, but we have an understanding of the good life being one that's um, beyond making money to trade. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and that's why, again, I got the kids to make a bag mm. because it was to understand that making money to buy things is one of the greatest drivers of climate change yeah. in our society. Materialism, consumerism, um, you know, and fortunately, part of First Nations culture is to be creative and productive and have a great sense of fulfillment by understanding your own skill and capacity as a, as a human being. In modern society, we put all of that value into like how high we can educate ourselves mm-hmm. and how good of a job we can get, you know, working at a desk. Um and I just think that that's so it's so narrow, right? And human beings are worth and capable of so, so much more. But we don't allow time for it anymore. And so the land plan looks a lot at how do we provide time for us to be well with our culture? And if we are well with our culture, then we're going to have people who are more fulfilled and we're going to be better able to fulfill our inherent duty as stewards of the land. Right now, we're not able to. Do you, th- from from your experience and, and what you're working on, do you think that getting to that point where you say, oh, you know, and, and I wrote this down, a way to live, which is, you know, I think what your plan is is looking towards, a way to live, this, you know, and, and incorporating, as you say, the indigenous good life. Do you think that, that it's going to take some... Uh, some uh, changes from the non-Indigenous side to incorporate and to bring more of the Indigenous way into the the plan, into the, the for themselves to live. Mm-hmm. Certainly, 
And, you know, from my travels, from my, my colleagues, I, I think that, I think that non, the non-Indigenous population is, is very interested in, in thinking of different ways to live. And it's just the fortune of the Indigenous population that we have a memory and an understanding mm. and now the determination to unveil a different pathway. And um, I just believe that, you know, all of society, like sometimes I try not to separate Indigenous versus non-Indigenous because mm-hmm. I believe all of us are actively seeking a, a different means and there's dissatisfaction with the status the status quo now and that's evident through some of the things like you know the youth climate change protest it was awesome to be in europe during as Mm. those were picking up and i even joined a protest while i was in stuttgart and i was so proud of the kids Mm. and um you know there was i just think that you know, the First Nations people, we understand that there's a different different way to live and we remember a different way to live. Non-Indigenous people are seeking and wanting a different understanding that we need a different way to live, especially to combat something like climate change. And there's more um, words that are coming out that say, you know, it requires like a whole radical shift to our society. So, you know, how do we move forward? Well, part of what I'm trying to uh, do with the land plan is at least articulate a vision of something to work toward that's founded in the lessons of our ancestors. And it's for something, it's something for everybody to work towards, not just us. And so even in our, in the plan, I I use terms like shared prosperity, shared, because it's not just us, Mm -hmm. it's everybody that's got to work towards this. Right. Yes, it would have been nice to have that uh, kind of language over the last couple of hundred years. <laughs> A number well, of things. You know. <laughs> but anyway, uh, moving forward, uh, I, I really like what you said there about memory, that, that uh, Indigenous people have that memory that is, is available. And, you know, it, and, and when you said that, I thought, gee, I wonder if, if that's just simply what has happened over, over time. Um, many Indigenous people uh, or, or the European people have, have forgotten They've just forgotten because they've they've stepped away from that life for so long that they they've just don't have that memory anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and for me too, it's about a lot. Some people when I was there, they're like, "Well, what do you want to go back to living in the sticks?" I'm <laughs> like, "Well, no, that's not at all the mission here. Mm. It it is about taking the lessons and the wisdom and the the truth of yesterday." Right to advance where we are today right. and give us give us direction because that is the indigenous way we listen to our elders we listen to our stories to make to realign our wellness and our being mm. to be whole right and if right now society does not allow whole people mm. yeah interesting and that's yeah that's how we move forward uh, Jocelyn, our time is is wrapping up, but I would like to know, if you don't mind, quickly, um, uh, can you tell us just before, we're going to go to a break, and then we're going to move on to our, our other caller, if that's okay with you, and um, I'd just like to know a little bit more about you as a person. Uh, you know, I think it's very interesting that you're an Indigenous scientist, a philosopher, and uh, that you study microbiology and, and hydrologists. Uh, so, can you explain, how, how did you get into that? <laughs> um there's a lot of different personal reasons why I, mm. I got into to science. I was interested in cancer. I had oh. family that was affected by cancer. Wow. And then when I realized that I couldn't help my family director directly by being a cancer research mm. researcher, I went into environmental bi- microbiology mm. to try and take care of the land. And mm. then when I realized mm. that that wasn't very sufficient, now here I am <laughs> using my words and my technical understanding to try and advance how we we govern ourselves and really quick before we go to i i do have a blog mm-hmm. that the gordon foundation um okay. who's based in toronto and who has been so supportive of me i was a jane glasgow fellow with their programming and um they've just been a wonderful uh 
partner and collaborator to have throughout my career. They've been supporting me for almost 10 years now, but they are hosting my blog. So the Gordon Foundation, um, dot CA and on the blog, I kind of muse about my reflections as I w- went through my European journey. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, and so and I hope to do some more writing and some more sharing, and especially as the PhD comes out, I am I do have a PhD to write as well. Mm. <laughs> I hope to explore these big ideas much further. My PhD is about the land plan, but it's also about moving forward as society in whole. So, what are the indigenous lessons of of living well? To in how can we use those to move forward for all humanity, not just for indigenous people? Nice. Um, that sounds great, and, and I, I certainly hope you stay in touch with us, uh, and best of luck with your PhD. I certainly think there's information in that 200-year plan you're working on that we all might be able to benefit from. So uh, best of luck with that, and thank you very much, Amiguetch, uh, for calling in today and being a part of our show. Yes, Gwyneth Chish, thank you very much. All right. <laughs> Thanks, take care, and uh, talk again. That was okay. Jocelyn Jo Strack, and she is, uh, as we mentioned, an Indigenous scientist, philosopher, and entrepreneur. And we're going to take a break. We're going to take, go into a song, uh, either Elizabeth Hill or, uh, or something of that nature, and uh, we'll come back and talk with our next guest right after this. And welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. That was Elizabeth Hill. She's a Six, Nation, Six Nations artist. Beautiful album. And uh, that song was Earth Song. On the line, joining us from uh, the West Coast, we have Deborah Charles, barrister and solicitor. And uh, we are very uh, grateful that she was able to call in and be with us this morning. Good morning, Deborah. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. How are you? I'm okay. How's the West Coast? <laughs> it's good. Sunny right now. <laughs> I understand the flowers are out. Ah, uh, yes, they are. Yeah. Are you they calling? Are, are, are you are you right in Vancouver? No, uh, our office is in Burnaby. Oh, okay. Just outside of the yeah. just outside of the downtown or city yeah. area. Well, I, yeah. I want to thank you for taking part uh, in our show today, and. Um, now you you are a, a staff lawyer at Prisoners Legal Services, and um, we want to talk about that to some degree. And you know, I can tell you, are, are you familiar with a book called Legacy? No. I okay. Don't know Legacy. Well, it, I, our guest tomorrow is going to be on the air, and uh, her name is Suzanne Methot, and uh, the book uh, Legacy: Trauma Story and Indigenous Healing. And it, uh, in part of the book that I'm that I'm reading, it deals and talks about this, and it was very discomforting to to read, uh, specifically about what is happening uh, with indigenous people that are incarcerated, um, and you know we hear about these things, but we don't we don't hear the details. We don't hear mm-hmm. about the ongoing, um, unfortunate. Uh, you know, uh, incarceration of, of indigenous people and how they are sometimes wrongly incarcerated or, or deemed uh, dangerous to society. And that puts them in a whole different category, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Within the prison system, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's quite difficult to um, realize your rights sometimes. Yeah. And especially when you see that um, if if someone is deemed dangerous, uh, that it 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 takes away some rights, it, it, and they're able to be in, incarcerated longer. They can be put into segregation, um, and and sometimes I've I've seen and read some things that that some of these people that are looking after these institutions say this person shouldn't be in here. They should be somewhere where they can get help. This isn't a place where they are going to get that. Yeah, and that's exactly what we're dealing with. And um, I think the case that you're calling me about today is a situation very much like that. Mm-hmm. Do you want to do you want to talk about that and tell us about it a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we're working um, with an individual named Mr. Toussaint, who's incarcerated at Saskatchewan Penitentiary. Mm-hmm. Um, he's kindly allowed us to share his story. Um, he, um, you know, very similar to the issues you're talking about, um, 
he, like so many other Indigenous prisoners, um, he entered custody on relatively minor charges um, as a young person. Mm-hmm. Um, but his experiences in custody have led to much more serious charges, um, including serious violence. Um, and he, um, you know, Mr. Toussaint, he grew up on reserve on the Black Lake Denisulini Nation in Saskatchewan. Um, he was raised by his grandfather and by his mother. Um, his grandfather taught him traditional practices. And then he lost his grandfather and one month later his mother when he was only 15 and uh, ended up in provincial custody when he was only 16, uh, where he was horribly physically abused um, by 18 in adult custody, has spent a lot of that time, um, at least 2,000 days of that time, so at least five and a half years of that time in um, segregation in adult custody. Um, And over that time, uh, various different mental illnesses have been diagnosed. Uh, He began to self-harm and have some suicide attempts, and that has become worse and worse. Um, And so now we are working with him. Um, You know, he has a human rights complaint uh, with respect to um, the lack of accommodation for his mental disability and um, the ability to practice his, his cultural practices and spiritual practices. And uh, so we, we're, we're working on an injunction to um, try and get him moved to the Regional Psychiatric Center in Saskatchewan, which is both a prison and a psychiatric hospital where there's mental uh, health staff available 24 hours a day and, and where he could potentially get the help he needs um, to stay safe until his human rights application has come through um, because he really is at serious risk of of dying by way of his own either self-harm or suicidal ideation at this point. Now, I, I want to jump in and just say something that, that is written in the in the article on, on this. Uh, and it, it, it was disturbing for me. I mean, it's one thing to be incarcerated. It's one thing to be put in segregation. But when you see something that says he's kept in a cell where the lights are on 24 hours a day, and he has mm-hmm, to sleep mm-hmm. on a concrete slab. Mm-hmm. <sighs> so that's the response, exactly. That's that. That is not the full five and a half years. That that yeah. is the observation cell where, mm. when he is believed to be a risk to himself, yeah. um, they put him on this watch, and and it's it's as you describe um, when he's on high watch, um, which is really <laughs> it's really quite terrible. And I I think the other component. Um, here is just, um, you know, the Correctional Service of Canada, um, CSC, they are, they're mandated to provide correctional, to rehabilitate and reintegrate prisoners in their custody, and specifically to ensure that those outcomes are equal, substantively equal to Indigenous prisoners, to prisoners who have mental health needs, um, and it really is interesting, um, you know, I was thinking about this interview, I was thinking about uh, Minister Goodell's mandate letter to CSC Commissioner Anne Kelly uh, late last year, and specifically recognized the over-representation of in- Indigenous peoples in federal custody, and, and wrote, your duty is to ensure that those who've come into conflict with the law find a real opportunity to turn their lives around, and later to do to do everything possible to keep people with mental health problems out of segregation. And I wondered to myself, you know, that is a, it was a, it was a great mandate letter, you know, strong principles. And then you look and you say, here is a real person, a real indigenous person with serious mental health problems. And are they getting an opportunity to turn their lives around? Are they being kept out of segregation? And the answer right now is no, they're not. Yeah. Now, there's, uh, in this book I was telling you about, it, it refers to something, the Gladue case of 1999 in the Supreme Court decision and, and how courts are supposed to be taking, you know, things into account like the history and trauma, uh, abuse, addictions, uh, and, and those kind of things for Indigenous people. And, and it goes on to say that that's not always the case either, that they're not always following that. Yeah, I mean, I think it is happening quite well on paper now. Mm. Um 
But I think it was recognized um, in, in the case that was before the B.C. Supreme Court all about segregation and its disproportionate impact mm. on Indigenous people and people with mental illnesses mm-hmm. that staff don't always really understand how to apply that um, and that there are biases and there, there is both conscious and unconscious discrimination. So I think it is incorporated into the policies. It's, it's checked off on the documents. But when you actually look at those documents, um, for example, the segregation reviews of Mr. Toussaint, you read through and you see a little section called Aboriginal Social History, and it might be copied from previous documents, no, no real change, no real grappling with it, sometimes really outdated information. So it's, it's happening on paper, but how often it's really happening substantively um, is a real question. Mm. Are you, uh, we only have a few minutes left, are you, are, are you feeling encouraged by what you will be hopefully be able to do for, for him? hopeful that we can get the right outcome for him. I I think that the law is on our side Mm. for an injunction. He has a strong case on his human rights complaint. There is a high risk of self-harm, and and I think that any cost to save his life is clearly uh, (laughs) minimal compared to the risk to his life and the Mm. risk of psychological harm and loss of liberty. Um, But I, I just hope I hope that the right outcome will happen here and that um, I think it's easy in the case of somebody with mental illnesses to see um, the aggression that might arise or to see issues, you know, related issues that can be difficult and challenging to deal with. And I think we acknowledge these things are challenging when you do have a person in custody and a person with mental illnesses. Um, And I think I I would just say that, that those challenges show the importance of somebody being in an environment where staff understand those challenges and can deal with them in a way that is least traumatic and most helpful to this person. Mm. Any final comments you would like to make? We're, we're down to about a minute or so. Um, I, I would like to, I definitely would like to continue this conversation with you, Deborah. There's more, much more that we could say and talk about and look forward to. Any uh, last final words just before we leave? Uh, no, I just I, I thank you for speaking to me, and uh, yeah, I do I do look forward to carrying on this conversation. Thanks very much. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. I greatly appreciate your time. That is uh, Deborah Charles calling us from the West Coast, and she is a, a barrister and solicitor with Prisoners Legal Services in uh, Burnaby, as you heard. I'm David Moses. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for our show tomorrow with Suzanne Method and her book, Legacy, Trauma, Story, and Indigenous Healing. It is going to continue on in sort of part talking about this.